Inside Marketing Podcast, brought to you by Dentsu and Irish Times Media Solutions. Ho, ho, ho! Merry Christmas! Hello and welcome to this week's Inside Marketing. This week is a slightly different episode. So uh, normally we have a, an interview with, a, with a, a famous person, a legend from the industry, or we, we talk about a topic. But this week, because um, a lot of people I've, I've, I've met have said, you should do a wrap up, a look back at some of the, the episodes because we have had some phenomenal guests on and, and, and like some of the, the content, the quality stuff that we've had has been, the contributors have been brilliant. So that's what we're doing. Give the fans what they want. We're going to have a little look back um, at some of the some of the highlights as we've done, what, 61 episodes now. So I'm delighted to be joined by Rob Kinsler from the Irish Times. So before we get into it, Rob, how's life? How's it going? How's things? Dave, thanks for having me. Yeah, all is good. Uh, business is good. Considering we're tiptoeing around, you know, another lockdown and variants of sorts. But uh, yeah, I mean, you just have to get on with it. The show must go on. And actually speaking of shows, I must commend you and say, well done on the great success to date on the podcast. Um, I must say, though, I did like that Aiden guy. Where did he go? Useless. He got the bullet. He was rubbish. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's it's come on leaps and bounds since he was doing it, I can tell you. And did you tell our listeners uh, about how you claim to fame about, uh, you know, your audio career and how it started? No, I did not. I did not think that would come up, no. <laughs> it was it was the week, I think, a legend of broadcasting, Gay Bourne had passed on. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Well, the universe could only one in, one out. As as a great broadcaster leaves, another one was born. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, on on that note, um, so yeah. Well, talk to me. Let, let's kick off with you. What, um, looking back on the, as I say, we've sixty one just as of last week. So, what are your? They're, they're all they're all great, obviously. But like, um, looking back at them, what what were your highest? Pick one for the moment and tell me what you liked about it. Well, look, I'm actually going to go all the way back to episode one. Um, Jesus, back to October twenty nineteen. Um, and there was one actually with Shenda and David Hay from Brand Finance uh, on brand building. And the reason I'm starting here is actually sets things up very nicely for what we were trying to achieve with Inside Marketing. I mean, we brought our goals, objectives, pet peeves, I suppose, about the industry. You hated the industry rabble and puff para press releases. Um, and you had a marketing role, obviously, to do with Dentsu. We both wanted to build a platform that was interesting and sightful and entertaining. And while we both had some fun, I think we've learned quite a lot over the last while. I know I have, certainly. And uh, But that build, brand building over time, you know, and, and what we've done with the podcast is to get people to come back, follow us, you know, take time to listen in to our hectic schedule. You know, it's really rewarding. So um, I'm going to start with that and clip one, really. It's right from the start. The conversation is about building a brand that simplifies decision for consumers. Define what brand means. And David, I think you're the man to answer that one. Well, I think the definition that's given to it by the ISO, who created a standard in brand valuation, is a set of legal rights, which if they're invested in properly and promoted over time, acquire distinctiveness with customers, favorable responses from them, which results in value. Unfortunately, I don't think we are investing in in what we would call long-term brand building. Yes, we're investing in in brand, but I think we're probably in an era of, let's call it short-termism or maybe performance, where we're much more focused on short-term returns and we're neglecting the the long-term brand building initiatives that allow us to build brands in, in, in the longer term. And I think there's probably any number of reasons for that, but probably... I think one of the most uh, visible reasons is as businesses, I think we've focused the last, let's say, 10 years or so 
on digital and that has brought with it this focus on instant results and and if you like that's become a, a drug that I think we as marketers have become a little bit hooked on you know so we're, we're really interested in seeing the performance of our activities and our marketing efforts what happened yesterday what happened last week what happened last month and we're not spending enough time I think thinking about the longer term impact so I don't think we are looking as much at long-term brand building and of course it's it's the balance between long and short but we're not looking at the long term as much as we should Dan second clip you're going to hear David and Shenda talking about you know improving investment in brand building by having the CMO at the top table and this is a recurring team uh, in, in Inside Marketing we've covered it quite a lot so you'll hear this now well, I had someone the other day saying there's no such thing as a digital strategy, that really you have a business strategy and the digital is there tactically to help you achieve it. That sounds a lot more sensible to me. I mean, basically, digital is just one more channel. There are many different channels. You can have distribution, you can have people, you can have conventional channels and you can have digital channels and it's all just part of the same thing. The question is, what is your business strategy? And I think it's also worth focusing on actually understanding business. And that's another thing I, I think that we need to, in some ways, grow up a little bit. And as marketers start talking about business, as much as we talk about marketing and marketing being a means for us to deliver on our business goals. And I, I think that's that's the critical point. And one of the ways in which we can, I think, improve investment in brand building is by being able to take a seat at the top table with the CFO of a company and, and, and speak the same language. And, and that's the language of business and understanding that the marketing efforts and the investment I'm going to make is going to reap returns in the form of sales. And I think investment is an important point. All too often we talk about marketing as a cost, but actually it's an investment. It's an investment in your brand to deliver long-term business results. And I think that's important. Yeah, that was, that was a, yeah, no, that was a really good one. I think it was great when that happened because I think, you know, it, it was a, it was a project, a concept up until that point. So to actually have it go live was a little bit scary, but um, when you actually put something out into the world and then little did I know we'd be here 61 episodes later, but yeah, it was a brilliant one. Um, I'm going to start off then and talk about one of my favorites. So I think um, there's like, there's been a lot of, there's been quite a lot of high profile guests on, but just to start off, I think one of my favourites, and still to this day, in terms of you know special guests that we had, is is the OG himself, Mister Kieran O'Kane. So, I mean, he's been on twice. I love having him on. I just think because he's, he's brilliant, he knows his stuff. He's just a he's a really good speaker, and he doesn't care whether you agree with him or not. He just says it like it is, um, and he says a lot of things actually that like you know maybe others might think and, and others might want to say, but they won't say. Well, certainly me, I I would agree with a lot of things he says, but I just can't say it given the role that I'm in and given the parts that we have. But he doesn't care. He just says it like it is. So, um. I actually think he's one of my favorites. We'll definitely have him on again. So the first clip I'm going to play is when, you know, he he is known for making his big predictions um, every year. So when I met him, this was way, way back on episode 14 um, when he flew over to do it because um, he's based in London. So the first thing we talked about, his big bets and actually... The, the big thing that he made was when we look back at now was that Google would inevitably get out of, of, of or kill off third-party cookies. So take a listen. I made a prediction uh, at the end of the year that Google would go all in. Now, a lot of my friends uh, and colleagues work in this industry. Yeah. I have quite a lot of friends globally and they said, no, don't, Google won't do this, Google won't do that. But the reality is Google has many facets as we've seen. It's a massive company yeah. and Chrome works independently of the ads team. So I said, look, I, I think Google cannot afford to lose market share to the likes of Safari and they're going to go all in on this. 
and every industry needs to be prepared. And we've been saying it for a year, and I've been saying to my friends, they're going to throw us under a bus. Yeah, yeah. And I don't mean that in a bad way, but you know, metaphorically, they will throw yeah, us under yeah. a bus. And it happened. Q1. I thought it'd be Q4. Yeah. I really did. I, I I honestly thought they'd wait a couple of quarters before they dropped the bomb. And yeah. sure enough, Q1 dropped it. Yeah. And it's it's pretty intense for for the industry to take the take stock of. That, yeah, no, absolutely. Because if you think about it. I don't know how it worked to most agents groups, but what I was told is a lot of the Safari spend was pushed into Chrome. So everybody was hanging their hopes that Google won't do this, they won't do this, it's too important to them. Of course they're going to do it. I mean, they've got bigger plans for Chrome than just retargeting display. Mm. You know, it's part of their Stadia strategy around gaming. Google has a 10-year outlook as opposed to like, you know, quarterly by yeah, quarterly. Yeah. I know that they're a public company. But uh, yeah, I predicted that one. I said I told you so. The recent quarterly results that Google released and its uh, fiscal 2019 year, where they broke up, broke out YouTube revenue over the last three years, was really interesting. But why now? Why would they do that now? I think what they're doing is <clears throat> they're showing the market that they're making revenue elsewhere, just uh, the network display business they have, which is quite significant. So, but I think they're starting to to, to maybe. Uh, prepare the market that they mm. may get out of this business. Now, there was a Wall Street Journal article yesterday, or sort of the day before, talking about um, the, the antitrust against Google, and it's been investigating in the US. And there was a reference in the article that there was informal conversations happening in Google about getting out of the ad tech right. platform business. Google doesn't have informal uh, yeah. conversations. You don't go down to their expensive canteen and have some like, you know, fried chicken on a Friday and chat about this stuff. This was this is Google plotting out how do yeah. we signal to the antitrust guys that we are doing this to to, to give the market a chance to an olive an olive branch and all saying yeah. that we know what's gonna happen and so what, antitrust. What, what is like if you think about DV three sixty, which which is the dominant DSP in the space, they could bin that tomorrow, and it wouldn't have any effect really on Google. Um, AdX as well, they could close it down, and I think they could close it down. And, and remember that AdX is just as affected by the um, Chrome action as the rest of the industry. Like third party cookies become impossible, and if you think about programmatic, the open programmatic ecosystem, it's completely, it would be completely uh, affected by. Chrome's actions. So AdX then becomes, uh, maybe we don't need this after all. Mm. So YouTube for them is growing like a weed, right? It's where all the revenue is. And most of that revenue is kept, they have to pay it out to partners. Some of them, the parents, yeah. didn't, didn't, didn't break out that revenue. So my feeling is Google's going to do something. It's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to jump before it's pushed. Mm. Yeah. And come to some kind of agreement with the antitrust guys. Now, I'd love this. I, from a be business good, point of view, it'd business, be awesome. Yeah. And I think it'd be good for the industry as well because yeah. I don't think Google, because of the stranglehold Google has around the ad server, around sort of like the whole uh, ad tech ecosystem, they don't really need to innovate. You know what I mean? They bought quite a lot of their... Uh, their um, like you think about it, they bought yeah. Double Click, yeah. right? And then they bought the DSP themselves, built that in. Mm -hmm. and then they bought the uh, the SSP. So they they buy tech and then they, they incorporate it into one one sort of uh, system. Yeah. But they haven't innovated. I, I think it, it could be quite interesting if they leave. I mean, yeah. I'm not saying I've got out in the limb. I said I think they will. I think they will. Yeah, you see what I mean? Like, he just says it like it is, and he talks a lot of sense. So um, we then got to talk about how, in a cookie-less world, context becomes really, really important. Um, and actually, his point was that that could be really good news for a local publisher. So have a listen to this one. 
context was always important, but it mm. becomes even more important in in the new in the new pri- I'm, I'm calling it the new privacy force war because that's what it is, right? Mm. Uh, audience buying becomes more difficult. So let's let's look step back from this. I think what Andrew Casale, who's the CEO of Index Exchange, which is a which is a very large SSP globally, and he's a very smart man. He did a presentation at his company's event, which I was invited to, talking about the anonymous web versus the authenticated web. Yeah. So I think this is where first party comes into play, right? So first party logged in data becomes even more important than it ever was. That's what gives Facebook and Google its power effectively, yeah. you know, the ability to be to match emails, effectively hashed emails while you have logged in data. It becomes even more important in the new programmatic world um, because you're you're able to do ID matching. Mm-hmm. And, and and that was uh, Andrew's point that that's going to be the gold standard in, in programmatic. Now, the yeah. rest of the web that you can't track now because of ITP and all the rest of it will become context-led. And I think that's where premium publishers will benefit massively because it'll, it'll, it'll be a swing back to context. Yeah. But then that has the problems for yourselves as holding groups and agencies. Measurement. How do you measure? Mm. How do you uh, attribute? The last touch attribution or yeah. works well. Multi-touch yeah. goes out the window because you have no idea how, how it works in terms of like where this person saw the ad in the post view and all the rest mm. regarding the display goes out the window. So then that piece is difficult for you. But in a world where first party is king, right? Wall gardens will just would just grow everywhere. Spring up everywhere, yeah. And this goes back to, you know, the point uh, about the value of agencies and own groups. Marketers need that expertise to navigate all those different wall gardens because they can't bring everything in house to do that. Mm. Uh, and that's another consequence of this specific move by Google. In-housing will become harder. more tricky, yeah. Yeah, because if you think about it, programmatic enabled mass audience part yeah. as you say yeah, trust yeah. me i'm a doctor like I, I can imagine the conversations that the guardian or the irish times have had with various mm-hmm. buyers in the programmatic agents well we're going to charge you x amount of money so why do we need to buy that when we can buy that user for x amount on Absolutely, another pub- yeah, publisher yeah. right commoditized price of everything exactly. which is a huge problem for for publishers exactly in this market. but it swings back to the publishers in that respect because they have more power now in terms of we've got context and we've got logged in data so that's 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 amazing but the Irish Times will be one wall garden and then there'll be, you know, a bunch of others in the Irish market as well. And it, it, how do you, as a marketer, navigate all that when your your main goal is to kind of in, increase brand equity and increase sales? Yeah. Yeah, Kieran, he's a great guy. Um, great team actually over there. The Mad Tech Podcast is what we listen into. Uh, shout out to Kieran, Lindsay and Rachel. And I don't know if you remember the morning we met Kieran in the Dillon Hotel. We rock up for breakfast and, and Kieran tells us, oh, look, lads, I have to be out of here by 11 o'clock. I think he was really sussing us out. Do you remember that? I do, yeah. He, was, he had an escape. He had his parachute ready in case, in case <laughs> he didn't want to hang around with us. He did, he did. We actually, we, we got on really, really well and he didn't leave it at 12, half 12. And he's been back on the show, as you're saying. He's actually done some work for News Brands Ireland. So, uh, yeah, great guy and great episode. Now, I'm going to actually go into a topic really, really close to my heart, actually, for the next one. And that's the future of publishing. I think what's good here and really makes a statement of what we're about is giving facts as they present themselves and not shying away from trends and data that sometimes doesn't hold my medium in the best of predicaments. I mean, hindsight is a great thing. You're going to hear a couple of clips now and, and you know, the topics like rush to scale, the original sin of giving the content away. And then what's really, really important is that, you know, the crisis, the societal crisis that will be out there, quality journalism doesn't live. And these, these, uh, these clips cover this. 
get the audience, first of all, that was the, the first key phase, was making sure that the sites were free and accessible to a really wide audience. In fact, you know, in many cases, publishers were able to expand their audience to a greater size than ever before. But the, the really tricky part was in monetizing that. And over the last five years, we've seen increased attempts to put much valued content that, you know, traditionally print buyers always paid for behind a paywall, which isn't a word that publishers always like using, but to a certain extent, many of them are now operating metered paywalls where maybe a few articles are free or maybe a few paragraphs of an article can be read before people are asked to subscribe. But the real issue that the core problem (laughs) is that there's so many outlets doing the same thing. It's not just the Irish ones targeting an Irish audience. There's a vast number of international outlets also targeting the Irish audience. And some of them are also subscription models, but some of them are still free, ad-dependent, perhaps unsustainable in the long run, but just the sheer volume of them and the options that people have has, I think, weakened some younger generation's brand loyalty and attachment to publications that remain incredibly valuable with really strong content. So I think the product is perhaps even better than it ever was, but there is still some adjustments that need to be made in the business model. And after this period of frenzy, that strong content will win out just to touch on Laura's point, I think it's no coincidence that the rise and and the growth of Google and Facebook has coincided so heavily with the demise of what we call local publishing industries. So first of all, and and Laura touched on this, as there was a big debate about content moving online free. I think that was probably, say, the original scene was giving content away free. Well, arguably, publishers globally did this twice. So they gave it away free by putting it online and, and struggled with paywalls, but then allowing Google and search engines free access to that content effectively gave the Googles the opportunity to monetize the the content. And that's a huge debate now we see around a European level. The second thing, revenues, as as Laura touched on, print revenue was significantly higher. It carried a much bigger premium. With digital, there's a massive oversupply of inventory. The cost of digital advertising is so inexpensive. And that's a whole other issue about what content is quality. We'll touch on that later on. But I think there's just so much that everybody has an audience, everybody has scale. From an an advertiser's point of view and from our client's point of view, you can buy that anywhere. And what's happening is this race to the bottom. I think what's happened is publishers or or newspapers have kind of lost their purpose. I think they served a very clear purpose. So a newspaper used to collate world news, local news, talk about reader offers, give you deals and information, had local events, listings, and quite a heavy sprinkling of sport on that. And arguably now, Google play the role of a modern-day newspaper. They do all that collation. They provide all that content, and they do it quicker and at scale and in a much more vast way. And whether you agree with Facebook being a publisher, I'm not sure whether they even agree whether they're a publisher or not, they fulfill the role of a modern-day publisher. So there's quite a lot of things that have gone on. And it's not a great position to be in from an advertising point of view. And the strength and importance of local media and local free press in society, I think we're at a really dangerous point in society. And I think we have a duty of care to all do our best to try and support local print. But it's quite a lot has gone on. It's been tough times, to say the least. Dave, you said that crisis was a, a harsh word to use. I actually don't think so. And I'm not talking about the crisis of the industry. I'm talking about the crisis of society where 
we've dumbed down content in order to satisfy the audience. But therefore, we're dumbing down critical thinking. Forbes, for example, I know it's a privately owned publication, but Forbes use 20% of the articles are written by AI. That's dangerous. And then you break in stuff like deep fakes and all that kind of thing. And quality journalism that's written from an unbiased perspective is so important. Sometimes you just want the facts. You don't always want the opinion. And I totally get sometimes you're following a journalist rather than a publication because you like the way that journalist writes, you like the way they present the argument, etc., etc. But we need quality content. But then we also need society to consume that quality content. You know, it's one of these things where you can go, everyone's wrong except this small collection of people. And, you know, isn't it the case in, in free markets that public get what the public wants? So if they, if they, if they don't value um, long-form journalism, then is it right to say, well, they should? I don't know. I mean, I totally agree. I think that type of disposable news, news that is just kind of headlines and clickbait, I, I think is wrong. But that, we've seen some interesting things. We talked about collaboration. I think certainly the UK, the Ozone Project, publishers are coming together to offer, and it's an advertising solution. In my opinion, the lines, church and state, they have to exist. Editorial integrity is key. But I think publishers need to be clear. Commercial funds that newsroom. They have to realise that without the commercial, there is no newsroom. It doesn't happen. They'll slim down and slim down, strip cost out. And the way publishers can get out of it is to grow revenue. They can learn from Google and Facebook. So coming together to provide scale, insight on audience behaviours, that kind of stuff, they can only do that by combining forces and sharing you know, one login, one user ID unlocks a, a variety of content. I think that's the way forward. But I, th I think you're right in terms of society and, and do we want long reads but then who's to say that it has to be all or nothing the irish times or anybody else could say well the journalist's job is to do a 2000 word article slim that down without losing essence into 400 words which is punchier drive to the long form if you want accompanying audio potentially or and it's to think about your news delivery across lots of different platforms as opposed to saying we've done an article and we urge everybody to read it. I also think it's interesting because we talked about we don't like to ask people to go and buy a newspaper and eat your greens. I don't think there's anything wrong with asking people to support journalism. The Guardian, like loads of people and commentators in the industry, laughed at The Guardian when they put this thing on. You know, if you value journalism, contribute whatever you want. They had 300,000 subscribers, individual contributors last year. That's money they wouldn't have got had they simply not have asked. Maybe it's an Irish thing. We don't like asking people for handouts. I definitely think if you think your content is worth paying for, I would start, we talked about getting out, I'd start by asking people to contribute voluntarily. Patreon is a platform where it does just that. You can ask readers to contribute. Whatever they think is, is, you know, is valuable to them. You might value an article at one euro. Someone else might 10 euro. But it's discretionary. And I think there are certain things that newspapers, publishers and all, anybody in the content business can do. Yeah, that was a great episode. I know we had a different host, but the, the contributor, the guest on that week was just incredible. New stuff. Very impressed with that fellow. Where, where did he go? Um, my second favourite one was the one and only Rory Sutherland. Now, I mean, firstly, because I think getting him was a real coup. Um, and like... No disrespect. I found the first year of it was a bit of a slog. I was trying to have to, you know, force people internally in Denser to come onto it. Um, and it was great. But like it, it started to all the danger was was all starting to sound a bit like a Dentsu kind of love in, to be honest, which was quite Dentsu heavy. And Rory kind of lifted us, I think. Have getting Rory on lifted us. It, it made it easier for us to get guests afterwards. Um, people started reaching out to us. And then 
Um, and but we also got him three weeks before he turned up for a marketing institute gig, which was actually unbelievable. So um, yeah, he's just a great guest. Um, and and given given his time for a little old podcast in Ireland, I I be honest, I was really nervous. Like I was really nervous going into that podcast, but I shouldn't have been because he actually couldn't have been nicer. Um, and well, that nervousness is a common theme with all these big names. They've all been so nice, which I think I don't know why it surprised me, but but it it just did. Um. And again, like he's just one of those people that you'd listen to all day long. His books are amazing. He's just super smart. So the first bit I'm going to play is I asked him how people are like irrational and 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 how some brands just don't make sense and they shouldn't work. Dyson, Red Bull, etc. Yeah. Starbucks. There was no one going around, you know, before Starbucks existed, going, "Why the hell can't I spend four bucks on a cup of coffee?" Yeah. You know. Um, None of those things really would have made sense and none of them would have been generated if they'd come from large organizations uh, rather than from entrepreneur entrepreneurs mm. in the sense that large organizations would have effectively smothered them in logic yeah. before they had a chance to prove their value. The one exception, I think, is Nespresso, which is interesting because it's a genuinely entrepreneurial billion-dollar idea which did come out of a larger organization. Um, the IBM PC would be another example mm. um, of a highly uh, entrepreneurial idea which came out of a large organization. But yeah. those instances are rare. disappointingly rare. Yeah. And I think part of the problem is, and we've got to remember, that marketing is a probabilistic business uh, that has to exist within a deterministic business culture. Yeah. And in a sense, in the old days when there was a limit to how much data you could ultimately accrue and there was a limit to the purity of your measurement you just had to accept this that when we perform the act of advertising to some degree we're taking a punt mm. you know the odds may be on our side but we can't know exactly how this will work or to what extent or on whom okay mm -hmm. and the very fact that that data is now available has sometimes forced people i think um, or has encouraged the wrong kind of mindset to try and shoehorn marketing into the same deterministic mental map that would occupy finance or logistics or something of that kind within business. Mm. And I argue that a significant proportion of marketing and the value of marketing, when I say it's probabilistic, I mean that you do it to get lucky. You can't be sure how precisely it will work in advance. And you can't always attribute success in retrospect. You simply know through generalizable data that companies that tend to outspend their market share in other words, excess share of voice, yeah. tend to grow more than companies who underspend their market share, you know, in other words, suboptimal share of voice, tend to shrink. Mm. Now, okay, you can't be absolutely sure how that works in the same way that for 30 years, nobody knew how aspirin worked and nobody knew who, how paracetamol worked. You simply knew at a generalizable level that this thing worked without knowing how it worked at the molecular level, mm. okay? Yeah. Now, in the same way, I think a large part of marketing and a large part of fame is simply there to increase your surface exposure to positive upside good fortune in ways that you can't predict in, a, in, in advance and you can't necessarily explain in retrospect. And it, it has an effect on everything, fame. It's a kind of general lubricant for luck. And you can't be sure in advance how your fame is going to pay off. So requiring that 
the only justifiable marketing spend is something with a predefined objective, and it's only measured to the extent that you can qualify and quantify the effect it had on the objective you set in advance, is too restrictive a straitjacket to impose on marketing activity. Then after that, I asked him about just his view as to whether boardrooms and businesses generally today are, are just less keen on advertising than they used to be. So have a listen to what he said about that. So a large component of that, I suspect, is that the kind of companies that are large advertisers now are different to those which are major advertisers in the, let's say, the 1990s. So back in the 1990s, as late as I think 1993 or four, about two-thirds of ad spend was packaged goods. It was the Unilevers, the Reckitts, you know, you can imagine the P&Gs, or Brewers, for example, beer brands. Okay. Now, in those entities, marketing is a significant cost, and the marketing director is a senior guy, and there is a strong marketing culture within the organization to such an extent that the CEO had probably done a stint in marketing at some point in his life. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, if you look at where ad spend comes from nowadays, and media spend, um, it disprop- that's, I think, packaged goods and similar I can't remember the last time I saw a beer ad, to be absolutely honest, okay, on British TV. And packaged goods and discretionary expenditure goods are now down to about 25% of ad spend. And the slack's been taken up typically by companies from finance or tech, Mm. mobile phone, you know, mobile phone networks, mobile phone handsets, yeah. uh, you know, uh, what would you say, you know, insurance comparison websites. And those companies have much more of a left brain culture to begin with. Mm. And by dint of having a culture that's founded quite often on either economics or a kind of technology and engineering mindset, those cultures tend to hate marketing because they tend to approach the world with an efficiency driven model, which sees marketing as an inefficiency it's a cost yeah. to be minimized yeah and so that's highly important because uh, I, i've always made the point that anybody who studied economics as a byproduct of their study of economics will become mildly hostile to advertising as indeed some economists george akerlof and um uh, going back a while nicholas Caldor, were openly hostile to advertising mm. because they saw it as essentially they didn't realize that value was created in the human head right. their model had value being created in the factory yeah. and the consumer already knowing to the penny what they wanted and how much they're prepared right. to pay number three for me goes to uh tarzan economics which was a book written by will page as Will states, he you know you swing from one vine to the other while pivoting through disruption. I actually heard Will on David McWilliams' podcast. I knew straight away he's he's the guy we need to get on the show. He's so articulate and has a great pedigree on dealing with disruption from his years in Spotify, chief economist at Spotify. So um, yeah, I think again, like we address those tough topics of disruption or distinction head on, uh, and Will has a way with words, and you two really got on well on the discussion. And I'm sure it resonated with our listeners. Uh, Will told me off. Mikey was really impressed and appreciated the research and work you did on prepping for the pod. So well done, Dave, uh, consummate professional. Yeah, thanks. No more guests, which means I have to read a book, please. I, I, I know it was great. It was a really good book. I'd recommend it to anyone. So yeah, the next couple of clips you're going to hear on attention economy, which is really, really important. I only talked to a colleague this morning about the attention economy, um, measurement and monopolies, and then the order of events that have changed marketing. Enjoy. And the contestability point is interesting. Vince Gilligan, the writer-producer of Breaking Bad, loves the book, which is an honor for me. 
But a funny backstory, I didn't actually know who he was when I was told this. So you're going to meet Vince Gillian. Uh, who's he? What did he do? Oh, he did break <laughs> like. So I am desperately trying to finish the entire run of Breaking Bad. I'm on season four, episode 10 at the moment. So I'm giving two hours a night to Netflix to rewatch Breaking Bad for the first time. Mm. So that's two hours that Netflix gets of my media consumption clock, which is scarce. That means nobody else gets it. Spotify doesn't get it. Apple doesn't get it. Facebook doesn't get it. Google doesn't get it. Which means everybody else has increasingly less time to compete for. And right there, you can see the dynamics yeah. of the scarcity of attention and when contestability picks in. If I use the alcohol reference of some forms of attention are gin and tonic, they complement one another. Perhaps running in music is a complementary way of spending your time. Uh, other forms are substitutional. If Netflix gain means everybody else feels pain. And I think it's really important in the world of marketing and advertising that you're just trying to draw a landscape of the attention battleground and work out who are your friends and foes here. I think the book does a great job of that. Thanks, by the way, to a really interesting framework offered by, you don't go to your national telecom regulator for inspirational information, but this Ofcom over here in the UK regulates telcos. And in 2010, mm. they published this attention framework in like page 96 of a PDF report no one ever read. And I can swear down, barely a meeting went past at Spotify without us discussing right. attention with respect to this long forgotten framework in an Ofcon document. But it's a beautiful way of just thinking about how much importance do I place in activities? And then how much attention do I give to these activities? Mm -hmm. So I can give let's say Netflix a lot of attention watching some documentary about tigers in captivity, but it's not that important. That's interesting. Mm. I can give something a lot of importance, but not apply that much intention. It's just a beautiful trade-off to kind of start thinking through those friends and foes and that battle for attention. It's crucial for marketing. I mean, yeah. this is base one. Yeah, yeah. And measure, again, we, we just mentioned historical anecdotes there. And measurement like we live in a, in, a, in a time where we can measure everything too much with too much data but even it's fascinating because you talked about even we were always measuring attention we were always looking for ways to measure it even going back to public um, when people are you know public speaking those type of events and, and politicians addressing people so you know the idea of how loud the clap was was it was a measurement tool at that point and rightly so humans being humans if there's a way to measure something there's a way to game it uh, so you know mm. you would have had people going in and stooges going into the crowds and clapping and trying to that infectious nature of somebody beside me is clapping and screaming it must be great i'll join in so and that was the rolling stones andrew lou goldman the manager the original manager of the rolling stones would sit at the back of the theater and when the band came on he would scream and all the yeah. girls at the front of the theater would scream with him and that's where that whole screaming that's just like a baby cries all of the babies yeah. around him will cry to that emotional contagion is fascinating it, yeah it is and but what was, what was amazing to me was that was that because i think you know we can measure things at the moment and in the era of digital that we live in where everything can be measured and it's a huge issue in terms of my business in terms of what we can do you can have fraud measurement fraud at scale or mismeasurement at scale now in terms of what we live in so i just want to talk to you about that for a second because when mm. you think about and we mentioned google and facebook they, they come up quite a lot in this podcast so good and bad but like the idea that they are self-contained kind of walled gardens so they they set the rules they mark their own homework they measure their own you know audience and, and we, we all just have to live with that 
there's a brilliant story about, I suppose, a head-scratching moment for you um, in terms of a Megan Trainer track that you just couldn't understand. How did this happen? How did yeah. this catch on in so quickly in popular culture? So, and it really makes that point about, I think we weren't looking in the right place to see how we could measure how successful it was. Can you just give me that example for me? Because it's a brilliant, sure, it's a brilliant sure, example. Sure, sure. So the transferable point here for every single person listening to the podcast is to look at the order of events of how things happen. In whatever business you're in, whether it's like the beverage industry, the hospitality industry, there'll be a marketing order of events. This is how we roll out a campaign. Mm. We start with billboards, then we go to newspapers. So in music, a classic order of events of how a hit would happen is you started with Shazam tagging, essentially hearing a song on radio, like the melody, Shazam tag it, and then you know, go to the shops and buy it or go to iTunes and download it. Uh, so you'd have radio first, Shazam tag second, purchasing and consumption third. That was the order of events we had for the best part of a decade, maybe even longer. So then along comes this hit called Megan Trainer, where the order of events is completely back to front. We can work it out. It started with Shazam tagging, yeah. then it went to streaming, then it went to sales, and then radio came a distant fourth. Literally four months after the tagging, yeah. radio started playing the song. So... One year, late 2014, I, I, I presented the case study, hugely informative. My passion is teaching economics. Everybody's learning. I'm happy. We're understanding how the order of events in marketing a song has changed. But for the year that followed, I kept on getting dogged with this question of that Megan Trainer case study. Great work, Will. Great work. But where were the tags coming from? Yeah, so mm. I have got sweet fox for alpha idea oh, yeah. like how to answer this question. I just know tagging began the journey radio came last, not radio came mm. first, Shazam tagging came second. And then a year after, Emily French Blake, a real street smart Spotify, was you know, running around the world launching a company in different continents. And she'd come back from Seattle and she'd be working with Starbucks in some sort of business joint venture partnership. And uh, she was working late in the office. And I just said, you know, don't work too late, Emily. And she's like, Paige, you got to come here and look at this. Like, what? I said, I'm just back from Seattle where I've been working with Starbucks. I said, I know, so don't work too late. You're on a different time zone right now. I said, no, 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 look at my slide deck. And I had all this red ink around Megan Trainer case study. What are you doing discussing my case study with Seattle's famous Starbucks corporation? They're obsessed with it. Why? Because they were curating the song in their stores. My jaw dropped. It's like, go on, Emily. She said, no, no, no. They're convinced that the fact they were playing the song in their stores led to the Suzanne tags, which then drove the sales and took the song to number one around yeah. the world. And I mean, it was a huge number one hit. So I, my gut reaction was, Emily, this is baloney here. Mm. Um, or what do you say in the West of Ireland, the gobshite? Yeah. You, this, is, this doesn't make sense. Starbucks sells, in my opinion, poor coffee. It does not promote songs. Yeah. And then she flipped a slide and she said, well, Starbucks is the biggest radio station in America. They've got X, you know, 40, 50,000 stores, 30 million customers who all spend, think about attention to your earlier question, they all spend 30, 35 minutes queuing, ordering, receiving, and slurping their morning coffee. So I went back to Shazam and said, can we do some time of day analytics in these tags here? Can you tell me where time zone dependent the time of days was? And guess what? Yeah. Seven thirty to ten thirty yeah. in the morning. I was like, boom. Yeah. Now we we employ radio pluggers in the industry to promote songs on radio. We employ streamless pl streaming pluggers, I guess, to work songs onto playlists. Mm. 
but nobody employs a Starbucks plugger. Yeah, yeah. they were right. They're the yeah. biggest radio station in America. Means to an end. A crowd is a crowd wherever it can be drawn. And the lesson there is Starbucks is just as much a relevant crowd as radio, television, billboards, or any of the conventional forms. Yeah, he he was great. Just, yeah, quite, I really enjoyed talking to him. And, and the book is brilliant, as I say. Um, right, my next one, I'm going to go, my, my third one is kind of, I'm doing all kind of special guests. Um, not that the topics weren't brilliant, but like I just, you know, some of the people got, I got to speak to, I was lucky enough to speak to, um, it'd be a bit remiss if I didn't mention them. So my third one is more recent. It's Sir John Hegarty. And, and again, I felt like I felt it was a real statement to get him. And again, I was nervous as I was with Rory and I was with Mark Ritson as well and a few others, but I, I shouldn't have been. Thanks to Liam for Liam McDonald for sorting out this for me. He, he played a blinder to get him on. Um, I had a, a long chat with him and he, again, just a brilliant speaker, so articulate. And, um, you know, I'm always fascinated because like when you think about advertising, right, it's a fine profession, but it's not exactly something that's kind of beloved by the general public. So I think, imagine being so good at advertising, you got a knighthood for it. It's just unreal. Um, so when we chatted, I asked him why the industry doesn't seem to create as much good work today as it used to. Um, and I asked him, is that bad client or bad agency? So have a listen to what you said. Well, I think it's a bit of both, really. As I said, I think clients have lost faith in the big brand concept, uh, the concept of broadcast, the concept of doing something daring. I think agencies have lost the, are losing the skill of understanding how to create something truly powerful in 60 seconds or under. You know, we seem to live in a world today where you, you, you create content um, mm. and you take sort of two or three minutes to tell a story which... You know, when I was, you know, working absolutely in the, in the business, you took 30 to 60 seconds. It's one of those bizarre things. You know, one of these, you have to really understand the market is not always right. Uh, and this concept that the consumer is always right. No, they're not. Mm. They're often horribly wrong. And brands can often get it horribly wrong. And right now, I think lots of brands are getting it horribly wrong. We're not building big famous brands that resist competitive pressure, that, that can uh, sustain their futures. And it's because we have a, a, a whole raft of marketing people who believe, you know, the answer is technology. The answer isn't technology. Technology is a, is a means by which to communicate your idea. The answer is to have a brilliant, great idea. Then... Later on in the conversation, I asked him what it takes to be a great creative because his point is that, you know, everybody is creative. Humans are all creative, but like some people can't make a living out of it. So have a listen to what he said there. Well, I've always felt that, you know, um, creative people are observers. You know, one of the things I always say about a creative career is you probably have 10 years. Mm. Um, uh, and if you think about other aspects of creativity, you, you know, you look at painters or you look at musicians, right? You have 10 years, you have a purple patch, you do your great work, and then if you're lucky, you can go on repeating that. Now, some people obviously break out of that. In our industry, in the communications industry, you have to come in every day and have a new idea every day. Mm -hmm. So you've got to work out how you're going to make that happen, how that's going to function. And you, you're an outsider in the sense of you're an observer. I think great crazy people are observers. They observe things, they look at things, they kind of... and uh, that helps your creativity because you're seeing things from a different point of view. You're not sitting with an entrenched attitude. You're looking at other influences and you're hoping those influences influence you. So I think I do think great creative people, to a, to a large extent, are outsiders. If you look at them, they have, you know, they're either immigrants, they're either 
left-handed, right, they, they cut some weird thing about them that mm. separates them out from the mass. And uh, I, 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 I would recommend this. Everybody read the wonderful book by Walter Isaacson or Leonardo da Vinci. And he was an amazing man who was, in, you know, he was gay. He was a vegetarian. <laughs> he was illegitimate. He was also left-handed, not that made much of him. <laughs> but he was a genuine outsider. And I think that, in a sense, gave him that desire to look and observe and see things. So I think that's what makes great creative people. Um, we chatted about diversity then, and I think diversity is just a topic that keeps coming up. But his point, uh, we did a whole podcast on it before, but I often think sometimes we miss the point of diversity. So we like we have a good balance of gender diversity and a good mix of ethnic diversity in Dentsu. Um, and I know other agencies do too. But the point I always make about di- diversity is we don't have enough diversity of background. So hiring from the same, you know, talent pools and 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 you know schools and universities, and that's not the way it used to be. It was a far more diverse industry back in the day. So listen to his point he makes about that. Yeah, I think that. Well, I, I, again, I think you make a, an excellent point. I mean. I mean, in a sense, it is a creative industry. It needs within that mavericks. And I think today we have fewer mavericks. We have fewer people who are prepared to challenge, who are prepared to kind of uh, not accept the status quo. We have professionalised the industry in in a kind of way. And I can always remember when, you know, I was sort of growing up in it and people talk about we're not taken seriously enough or we're not professional enough and all that. And everybody nodded their heads wisely. Uh, and now that we have that, <laughs> sort of we have that status, I'm not sure we have it that much, but we now realise that we, we're now accepted like this and it's all become a bit boring. Mm. Um, and we are kind of churning out uh, sort of copies of each other in a way, which is the huge danger rather than looking at people who are complete outsiders and who think in a totally different way. You know, I was very lucky. I was, you know, came into the industry. I was born in 1944. I just then became a post-war baby. And that explosion of opportunity, mm. the, 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 the way culture was opening up, the youth culture was taking over. And also the important thing is the huge change in a way is that culture was affected from the ground up. Mm. It was from from working people up, the working classes up. Prior to that, it had always been top down. It had always been the educated classes who who determined culture, and that was a big change. And you sort of want to see something like that. Where is that going to come from today? Where is it going to? Go? Who's going to be challenging? Mm. And I, I do think we become obsessed with kind of tokenism rather than with ideas. And you know, you know, diversity is fundamentally important to creative. We become obsessed about it. We don't naturally embrace it. So therefore, the, the, the sort of concern is about being diverse rather than about being diverse with our ideas. Mm. Uh, and that diversity will come from a diverse workforce. But mm. if you're just obsessed with diversity for its own sake, then you know it won't work. I mean. So when, when I came into the business, nobody said we want more working class people in the advertising yeah. industry. Uh, we, we just came into it because yeah. we wanted to do it. We were able to go to art school. We went to design school. And, I was able to do it. and we were just there, you know, and, and it was expanding. And they had to employ us, but they couldn't find enough people from Eton and whatever it yeah. might have been. <laughs> so we got in and we made that change. But it was happening all across, you know, music. You look at 
the, the, the where music was changing, where fashion was changing, where theatre was changing, where writing was changing. It was all coming from the working class up, which was mm. great, which has made it so vibrant. So today we've got to look at where is it going to come from today. Mm. If you just employ tokenism, I want to have a more diverse work workforce. I don't think that's necessarily going to get you there. And lastly, I asked him about the fact that more and more we're seeing finance people running agencies. Um, and I wanted to know his, from his point of view whether that was the fault of, the, of the, the big bad CFO or whether it was actually the creative people's fault for not stepping up. So really interesting point he makes on that one. But they've got lazy. They've yeah. got, oh, I've gone for the money. I mean, when we started BBH back in 1982, nobody ever talked about money. We talked about ideas. We talked mm. about how can we create something better? How can we produce a piece of work that we're proud of, that we want other people to be proud of. And that was our driving force to create great work. Mm. Nobody, we didn't sit around and say, oh, wow, within five years we could all be millionaires. Yeah. And I think that's what's happening today. People are setting agencies up right. on the basis of, I'm going to sell it. Mm. Well, you know, as soon as, you know, I always say, you know, money has a voice. It doesn't have a soul. Mm. And of course it's important. Of course we have to, but you have to understand what it's there for. Mm. It's there for to make things happen. Um, you know, and that's where I think we're going wrong. And finally, um, we had a little chat about the facts that, which is again, one of the mistakes I see happen all the time. Brands chop and change things too quickly with new CMOs. So he makes some great points in this as well. That's another point that you know, we've, we've forgotten about creating long-term campaigns, commitment. Mm. You know, great brands commit to something and here we've got a situation where brands change all the time and they just walk to the advertising and they think that's what you've got to do rather than constantly refresh. And, you know, and I think you make such a good point there, Dave, and I think that brands have forgotten that, that you're establishing a relationship with somebody, keep it the same mm. and, you know, constantly refresh it. I went to see the Bond film. Uh, on over the weekend, a new Bond film, mm. Craig's last one, and and I always use Bond as an example of, of kind of don't talk about other brands, talk about but that's a, a franchise, it's a value, it's a brand in a sense. And 1962 when it was launched, who knows what it was worth? Maybe I don't know, 20 million. Mm. Today it's worth billions, you know. And and you know they haven't changed the end line, license to kill. Yeah, they haven't changed double O. Well, you know they refresh double O seven all the time. The story is fundamentally the same in some sense or another, but they constantly refresh it. Yeah. Uh, you know, they haven't said, well, we shouldn't say license to kill anymore. We should say license to thrill. Or, you know, that's what a, that's what a brand would do, yeah. wouldn't they? They'd be yeah. so stupid as to change it. Yeah, true legend of advertising, all right. Every time I think of him, it's that Levi's ad that pops into my head. Um, number four for me, I think I'm saving the best for last here. Um this is a guy that doesn't hold back at all. Um, and when he finally... <laughs> no, 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 no. When he finally agreed to come on, actually, I was uh, a bit nervous uh, with his P's and Q's on the show. Uh, it's the one and only Mark Ritson. Um, and I think it was a real cue getting Mark on because we were chasing him since October 2019, sending him LinkedIn messages, telling him how great he was, you know, all this stuff. And it went on and on and on. And then finally, Mark, are you coming on or what? Uh, and that strategy worked. Uh, he came on... I was in the room actually when I recorded and it was just a brilliant conversation. Great insights, anecdotes, very funny stories. And, and Dave, you remember you and I chatted about this and 
you know, you sent them over the discussion guide, as you know, always do, very professional. And you went, he's not even going to read this. Mm. And, and he didn't. <laughs> and he didn't. He, did he just come on. Hey, yeah. Super Dave, let's go. Let's go. Yeah. So uh, I thought he was very good. So um, clip number one, he talks about performance marketing and the wonderful job, the digital marketing gang, as he calls them, put labels on other media. Yeah, and I think to be even more creditable to the digital marketing gang, that not only did they name their stuff performance marketing, they also labeled all of the non-performance marketing stuff they didn't do, either legacy media or traditional media, yeah. and kind of bucketed it all together. And and for me, those labels are incredibly stupid. Yeah, mm-hmm. If you study properly the history and indeed the present time, and you look at marketing communications, there is a clear recurring uh, conclusion, which is all tactics have a place depending on strategy. Mm-hmm. And the more tactics that you include in a campaign, generally speaking, the more effective it will be. And so this idea that there's a group of digital over here or performance over here and ta- you know traditional over here isn't just incorrect, it's strategically stupid. Mm. What we need clients to be, and we've forgotten this word for a long time, is media neutral. Mm-hmm. As a client, you should be suspicious of absolutely every media until you can be certain it's going to deliver for your particular brand. So, yeah, I think we need to treat everything with an equal level of suspicion mm-hmm. and not, I mean, I'm always curious, you know, I love, I love a lot of people that work in digital marketing. I just don't understand the job title. What does the D mean anymore, right? Yeah. Radio in Ireland is more digitally delivered now than broadcast. Every outdoor ad bar about 10% in Dublin is on an LED screen not on, on print anymore. Newspapers are making all their money from digital editions. And, yeah. you know, Google's been around for more than 20 years. So this digital traditional hoo-ha is very unhelpful. They, yeah. they all have a place, Dave. And what I would ask every single uh, Irish uh, marketer to do is assume they're all bullshit. Get your strategy done first mm-hmm. and then see which combination of all those different tools will deliver best for you. And there is no single answer right yeah. and it doesn't help to create silos before we've even got a strategy put together second clip you're going to hear the imp- again it's back to the importance of long-term brand building you know as, as i mentioned earlier we started with this and it's a recurring team so um you know great insights here and, and mark even backs the cfo which is really a, a strange thing in, in our industry on digital, well, I, I can see the allure of short-termism, right? So I actually see why the benefits are because you can measure things. Whether, you, whether they're right or wrong, you can actually see your return on things in the short term. And I think, mo- I won't say everybody, but most people in marketing believe in the importance of longer-term investment and brand building, right? And we've never had more. I think today, when you look at all the brilliant work, that the marketing theory that exists, all the evidence-based work that, that Bennett and Field has done, we've never had more evidence now to prove that point. And yet, the debate still rages on. Uh, the question I have is why why don't non-marketing people believe in in long-term brand building? Because anytime I've said this to a client and shown them the IPA work and shown them that one, I get this answer. Yeah, yeah, that's great. But but our category, brand, company, client, whatever, is slightly different to that. Those rules don't apply yeah. to that. So so that's backward looking. So we're slightly different. So is that true, or do you think marketing are just not no. good at fighting their corner? Yeah, I, I don't think you can blame the finance people. I don't think you can. We, 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 we create this bet noir of a, a CFO that's somehow forcing the company to be short term. None of that's true. Marketers have been useless at marketing their marketing. That's the fundamental case, right? 
you're right in the sense that we now, I mean, mostly thanks to Binet and Field, who've made it simple enough for everyone to grasp. Um, we do have strong empirical arguments for the long of it. The problem is, ultimately, most businesses don't even work on a 12-month cycle anymore. Mm. Most of them are in a three-month, three Jesus, one-month cycle. Yeah. Right? When you work in that time frame, in that planning horizon, there's no way you can make a case for long-term brand building. Yeah. You, you just can't do it. Because the long-term is not the stitching together of lots and lots of short-term horizons. That's fundamentally not what it is, right? Mm -hmm. You have to stretch it out and look at a period in marketing terms of two or three years, right? Yeah. That's what the long of it means. Mm -hmm. Obviously, it goes beyond that, but you have to have two to three years. The reality is... There's almost no company that will ever look at the world that way unless the senior marketer is able to show them the mistake of looking short, 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 short. And the great irony of this is by looking at ROI, performance marketing, short-term returns, making significantly less money than if they'd have taken the long-term view over a three-year period. Because that's what the long and the short yeah. of it really tells us, right? Mm -hmm. If you look at three years and you split your money 60-40, 60 long, 40 short, and you, you spend your money appropriately, you will certainly not make more money in year one. It would be yeah. highly unlikely. But across the three years, when you average it out, you would make significantly more. Yeah. But marketers have not been able to make that case properly, and ROI and short-termism have dominated their thinking. But I wouldn't be blaming CFOs. I would blame marketers that aren't capable of marketing marketing to everyone else. And finally, it's the very debatable topic of purpose marketing, which always causes strong emotions among our industry and with people in general. Now, purpose is a bit of a can of worms. Um, done well, it's great. I think it's and I think it's increasingly important for, like, even for as an employer brand, what do you stand yeah. for? People look for that more and more and more. You've written about purpose. You've been skating of purpose, pseudo, maybe not skating of purpose, skating of pseudo purpose. Well, I had a whole podcast about it, and I think like purpose marketing. The problem is the marketing, not the purpose. I think when your marketing department are finding your purpose, you've got a real problem. So, um, what do you buy into brand purpose? Do you think it works? Do you think it's good? Is it as important as the marketing press seem to think it is, or is it all nonsense? And actually, can, and can it can it be a comfortable bedfellow with a company that has to maximise shareholder value or make a profit? No, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty dead set that almost all of it's a load of cock, first of all. So I've had to do things recently where I don't want to be completely negative, even though I am pretty much... I mean, let's be clear what purpose is. It's a massive load of wank. Um, <laughs> the, probably, there's so many ways to, to go at it. I'd probably go to Bob Hoffman, the ad contrarian. Hoffman's got this brilliant analysis. I mean, I call it Hoffman's refrigerator. And... Listeners should do it this evening, right? Climb out of your agency turrets, go into your kitchen, open your refrigerator and look, behold, the things that you consume. How many of those things have you even got a clue whether they have a purpose or not? <laughs> Never mind whether you ascribe to that purpose or were influenced by it when you made the purchase, right? It's a massive load of wank and it's there for a couple of reasons, right? The first reason is most marketers these days, particularly senior marketers, are uncomfortable about selling stuff. Mm -hmm. and, but, you know, this is a difficult one. I don't know when we stopped being proud of 
marketing good products that make a good profit, that satisfy customers. And listen, I'm not saying destroy the environment or treat employees badly or or, or, uh, or treat animals badly. I'm not saying that's that's what they should do. But what I'm saying is there's there's a there should be a purpose inherent in the capitalist endeavor, right? But that's not cool. That's definitely not cool. Second, that load of wank about purpose drives profitability is total wank. It's not that simple. If it was, it would be a lot easier, but it isn't. Clearly, and there's a very strong philosophical argument here. If you're saying to me you're doing the purposeful thing because it makes you more money, and I can show you that the least purposeful way actually is more profitable, does that mean you'll stop your purpose and start doing evil things? Mm. The point of purpose is it should cost you something. The challenge of purpose is you don't make as much money, but you do the right thing. Yeah. yeah. And, and these idiots, like making the case that purpose and the capitalist endeavor run in the same direction, pull the other fucking leg, right? It's like Wuhan not being the source of fucking coronavirus. Come on! <laughs> pull the other leg. Do you think we're all stupid? You know, we're not all morons, right? So in that sense, I think, you know, we've got to be clear about brand purpose. There are exceptions, a handful mm. of exceptions. But purpose in those cases didn't necessarily come from marketing. Yeah. It came from a company that wanted to do things differently and, and has it baked into their DNA. And so, yeah, I, I think we are moving to a post-purpose era, finally. But it's been a really difficult four or five years. I mean, you never underestimate the amount of bullshit that marketing is prepared to produce about itself right yeah yeah and at the end of the day celebrate making a decent product that doesn't destroy the planet but delights customers and employs people Mm. that's okay you know that is okay yeah yeah written was great I, i remember at the time andrea ringing me the the sound our sound editor and ringing me um saying listen, I started to edit out all the swear words. I just can't. He talks too fast. And I was saying, don't bother doing it. So I said, you'd be there all day. So yeah, um, wasn't for sensitive ears. But anyway, um, and my last one was actually a, a very recent one. It was Lawrence Green. Um, I actually love chatting with him for a number of different reasons. So firstly, because he worked on some campaigns, well, they that I remember, but ones that I also worked on when I was a planner. Um, so I can actually relate to everything he said. But he also, which I love, he gave some really practical examples um, of, of creative and, you know, and actually it wasn't just creative that, that he talked about. It was kind of really significant for media. So I thought he was brilliant. Um, and he's just a great writer. His article was fantastically written. Um, I started off by asking him, you know, about the Skoda brief that he worked on. And that for me is one of the greatest brand kind of U-turns of all time. It's just like, it's all driven by advertising and because it, it was a change of perception. So what I loved about that was that it makes this point, again, a point that John Hegarty makes, which is great advertising, find yourself in the truth, like the Marmite campaign of find yourself in the truth. So have a listen to what he said. Uh, yeah, of course I can, because it was probably the most parlous state any, any brand could be in ever. And um, it, it needs retelling because I know, that, I know the brand is a big brand in Ireland these days. It's a pretty big brand over here too, Dave. But back in the day, there was no brand in any category that was more broken than Skoda. Um, we'd been the only country in the world to import their cars when they were still being produced under monopolistic conditions in Czechoslovakia, which... Um, had resulted in exceptionally good price points, but exceptionally poor product quality mm. verging on uh, verging on the unsafe. So anyone of a certain age may remember the fun the tabloids had at Skoda's expense. There were dozens of Skoda jokes. They're still online. And when we were asked to pitch 
Skoda. We were told it would destroy our agency. We right. started a business 18 months previously. And, that, you know, they're fragile things, you know, and we were being very, very choiceful about our, our client base. We turned down Coca-Cola right. uh, with a kind of sharp intake of breath. And folks said, don't pitch Skoda. It will, it will drag you down rather than you dragging it up. And I think partly because we were willfully optimistic startup founders, mm. we looked at it and thought, it's now owned by Volkswagen. The next car's got to be pretty good. Mm-hmm. And isn't this just a case of perception and reality needing to be closed? And as you allude to, we, um, we encountered this bone-honest, crestfallen, ashen-faced, but sort of totally trusting client who came into the agency to brief us with, with loads of data, but he just sat us down and he said, please help us. We've got children crying in our <laughs> showrooms. I love that. And they were, you know, it, it, you, you kind of recognize that truth. I mean, he basically said they are so mortified by the prospect that mum or dad might drop them off at school or pick them up from a party that they're literally bursting into tears. Now, <laughs> you know, brands aren't normally that powerful on, e- on either side of the ledger, but at that point in time, this is late 90s, that, you know, that is genuinely the case. You know, a, a car is a, a, a kind of a family's badge yeah. of their identity to a degree. And, uh, yeah, a big problem for the new owner of Volkswagen and, and essentially one of, of social stigma that needed to be fixed. There was, there was no way we were going to argue people into submission. Um, what we had to hand was a good new car, we hoped. And also we had uh, broadcast advertising uh, to hand. Because we realized that we were faced with, uh, as I say, a a stigma that needed to be punctured. And Mm -hmm. we needed to kind of reframe the conversation around the brand. So my my creative directors wrote a a line that would go with the new car that simply said, it's a Skoda, honest. And that, that last word carries a lot of weight in that very short end line. Because it's basically saying to the viewer, we know what you used to think about us, but you know, we, we'd like you to think again. Mm. And we wrote TV commercials where the, um, the naysayers were obviously on the wrong side of the fence. The people who'd refused to believe that this new car was a Skoda looked foolish, whether it was the, the bumbling diplomat on a factory tour or the mechanic at a motor show trying to put it on the wrong plinth. You know, these were little, you know, 40 second uh, creative gems that, that, uh, move people from one side of the argument to the other very quickly because you couldn't leave that commercial without going, this mm. brand's self-aware. The people who think Skoda is crap uh, are yesterday's uh, men. And uh, I, I'm on side with, with this revolution, partly because we, we dared to do it so yeah. boldly. I then talked about um, the brilliant Sony Bravi campaign. I don't know if you remember that one, Rob. It's all the, the balls bouncing down the hill. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, and, like this was really, this is a really interesting one because it, it unintentionally harnessed the power of earned and social media. Um, and that shoot took place in San Francisco, which actually turned out to be a stroke of genius. So have a listen to what he said about that. We went to San Francisco uh, to, to find, you know, good hills and great light. And actually it turns out there would have been a much better reason for going there because it was at that point, probably still is, uh, one of, if not the most wired city in the world. Mm. So um, as we were to find out quite by accident at this point, the internet uh, could be our friend as we put um, even traditional broadcast campaigns to bed. We definitely hadn't planned for it because no one was at that point. Mm. Um, 
because you couldn't kind of systematically work these nascent tools in the way that people would go on to do so. Um, you know, you could say we made our luck by closing six streets in a you know in a big busy American city and uh, hurling hundreds of thousands of. Mm. Colored balls. I think there were a quarter of a million of them hurling them down the hills out of big mechanical diggers. And um, people were always going to pay attention. Yeah. Um, there were car alarms going off. Our production team were wearing hard hats and riot gear because these these balls, you know, could get up quite ahead of steam right. by the time they're at the bottom. So I think we made our luck in that it was going to get noticed. Right. Um, what we hadn't anticipated though was how quickly and how eagerly people would begin to upload photos on, onto what was then a very early photo sharing site called Flickr, yeah. which I think is still going today, but it's certainly not, you know, it's not Instagram. Um, and I, I was back at our office in London, whereas others were on the shoot, and we, we got these panicky calls coming in saying there's images from the shoot all over this, this site called Flickr. And of course, as soon as we looked on them, looked at them from London, we just thought, well, this looks, this looks great. great. Yeah. But it was um, very much at odds with the, you know, the old rules of a launch, which you all know, Dave. You, you keep your powder dry. Mm. Don't let competitors find out. Share it you know, as you approach an air date. What, what was happening here was a campaign starting as we were still shooting. We then, yeah, then we, we spoke about the guerrilla campaign um, because, as he said, the, the Bravo campaign created like an accidental playbook on how to use free digital media to build awareness. So it was kind of this, I remember at the time, it was the, the promise of a new area era of marketing and it never quite happened but like certainly this promise of you don't need to buy media anymore you, you'll earn it um so i asked him how much of that guerrilla campaign was actually the of it the, the viralness of that campaign was actually by design and how much it kind of was was planned or or lucky it's a great question because a lot of it was by design um i mean our, our timing was good remember this is 2007 i think and YouTube is only 18 months old, but it is getting mass traction. Um, I mean, I think it's now the second most visited website in the world, isn't it? At that point, it was we were just beginning to, you know, share remarkable video. It wasn't yeah. advertising, but we were just beginning to share remarkable video with one another in a, in a way that we now take for granted. So our, our, our timing was good. And bear in mind, this is a familiar brand, a familiar song. It's got an animal in it. You know, it, had, it had all the ingredients to sort of shareability. And, and people tried to codify that mm. after the event. But I, I think it's a hard thing to, to code. But I think, I think our timing was good. I think that people were, were ready to, to pass on advertising in a way that they, they stopped doing pretty soon afterwards. Mm. But we did do a lot of early seeding work. Yeah. Um, you know, I suppose today it would be known as an influencer strategy. Um, you know, we, we made sure that the people who were already sharing content knew about Gorilla. Mm. We put a few remixes uh, out ourselves so that that would encourage other people to find remixes. Um, you know, one of those, uh, which was Bonnie Tyler. Yeah, I remember that one. So an, another 80s career reignited. Um, that actually ended up going onto TV. So there was this wonderful circularity about a lot of, a lot of organic sharing, which just doesn't happen anymore. Mm. Some very deliberate seeding and remixing and encouragement from us for people to participate in it. 
And then this rather sort of happy coincidence of, of social driving TV as well as TV driving social. There, there was, you know, unashamedly, there was a big broadcast budget behind this, Dave, in, mm. in Britain and in Ireland and then in Australia and New Zealand. So it, it, this wasn't, you know, it didn't purely grow by word of mouth. It, it had that mix of both hearing about it from a mate and yeah. then seeing it, you know, with your own eyes. Yeah, what what I really found exciting about the whole campaign was that the rule book of media had been ripped up or certainly had promised to be ripped up. Um, and the promise that Gorilla made was, no, you don't need paid media anymore. And that actually, as we all know, wasn't the case as it turned out. So here, listen to what he said about that. I was one of those kind of heady optimists in, in that, you know, year or two probably where TV and kind of early digital, certainly early social tactics were playing beautifully together. And, and I, like most people, thought that might be the start of a new, you know, golden age. Because mm-hmm. if you could, if you were prepared to advertise bravely, to your point, you, you could find your way to free media, mm-hmm. most likely alongside paid-for media. But but what a what a prize, you know, to, to have work that was shared and, and participated with by, by your audiences. It, it turned out to be a completely false dawn. And in retrospect, I think we'd overestimated a couple of things. Firstly, people's level of interest in advertising. Mm. Uh, uh, you know, it, it was higher than it is now, but it's, you know, it comes pretty low down the pecking order of people's real lives. But I think we'd also overestimated our ability to create genuinely irresistible content. Mm. And then, of course, the tech giants turned themselves into big advertising businesses themselves rather mm. than just being sort of happy, accidental hosts. Mm. Uh, for this um, recent wave of advertising. So I, look, I shared the optimism at the time. Um, it definitely created um, new distribution for advertising. What it, what it didn't create was an enduring leap in creative standards. So yeah, the brilliant LG really loved that Skoda campaign. You know, it was brave what they did and uh, backed uh, Lawrence and his team and uh, just a courageous and, and great campaign so yeah, great guy it was I love that line you know the, the client coming in saying there's kids crying in our showrooms <laughs> like what what's the state the brand was in but that is it that is all she wrote we are out of time so thanks uh, big thanks Rob for coming in and joining me today thanks for coming into the studio man Dave thanks for having me again As it's been a real pleasure uh, Christmas now so happy Christmas yeah I'm looking forward to Mark I don't know I, I was going to say bigger and better next year I, I don't think we can go bigger and better like Hegarty Ritson uh, I, I have a hit list can. I have a hit list don't worry Byron Sharp you're on the list Sharpie's he keeps turning us down and don't Mr. Want him Mr. Sorrell is on it don't want him now anyway good luck <laughs> I'll, I'll tell him when I can fit him in no we've got some big names coming next year so yeah, listen, if you like that episode, why don't you listen back, check out some of the other episodes. There's all 61 or 62 of them now at this stage. Um, you'll find that by simply typing Irish Times Inside Marketing into your search engine of choice. Big thanks to Andrea on sound and Kira in marketing. And as always, thanks to our partners in the Irish Times Media Solutions who make all this possible. So happy Christmas, everyone. Stay safe and talk to you in the new year. The Inside Marketing Podcast. Brought to you by Dentsu and Irish Times Media Solutions.